0: Hello, Hub Podcast listeners. I'm Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub and host of Hub Dialogues. Today, we're bringing you a past episode from June 22nd with bestselling author and journalist Chuck Klosterman about his fascinating book, The Nineties. In the dialogue, we discuss the culture, music, and politics of the decade and its ongoing resonance today. The next voice we we'll hear is mine in conversation with Chuck Klosterman. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Chuck Klosterman, a best-selling author, journalist, and cultural commentator who writes with exceptional range from music to politics to basketball. His latest book, The 90s, reflects his unique perspective by providing a comprehensive window into a decade that gave us, among other things, the end of the Cold War the rise of grunge music and the beginnings of the internet. The 90s, which is now out in paperback, is a must read to remember this odd decade and its lasting legacy. Chuck, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues and congratulations on the book. Oh, well, thank you very much. Let's start with a big question. You write in the book's introduction that in hindsight, the 90s were, quote, a remarkable, easy time to be alive, unquote. Why? What do you mean?
1: Well, I mean, th- that's is sort of expressed from a a very specific perspective but for a large sect of north america this sort of was the perspective which is that the 90s were this strange middle ground between sort of the world we understand now and the 20th century you know there was no wars happening hot or cold the cold war was over and there were skirmishes you know you know that, that, that the u.s was involved with but it wasn't sort of a a full on embrace of that sort of wartime mentality. The economy was good. The Internet was still perceived as something that was only really a potential idea that seemed to have very little downside, even though there were some concerns about it. It was for the most part, it was like, well, this might be the answer to everything. The stakes in general were lower. Now, there's always going to be a person who hears that and says, well, you know, Not for my father. He was living on the street during that time. The stakes couldn't have been higher. And of course, it's always going to be the case. But I'm trying to write a book or tried to write a book that used a pretty wide lens. And, you know, this is maybe a, a strange thing to admit, but I know that going forward, there's going to be a lot of writing about the 90s from an extraordinarily subjective lens where people are going to look back at this period. And say, well, we all thought this, but actually this was true. Or we thought this band was important, but there's actually this other artist we should care about. And this film director got a lot of attention, but this other person no one knows about is more significant. Now, my book is sort of the baseline to push against. Like, (laughs) it is a pretty standard take on the conventional view of the 90s and sort of what that meant. Because I am a person who really believes that in many ways, the caricatured idea of a time is the most meaningful, because for the casual person, that is how they understand it. And even if they learn information, true information, or that contradicts, you know, the significance of that period, it's still working through the idea and through the prism that, well, this is what was the accepted way to understand the time.
0: The decade was a coming of age for those in Generation X, uh, which you describe as the, quote, least annoying generation. What makes it less annoying than the baby boomers before it or the millennials who followed it? And how did this generation's tastes and preferences come to shape 90s culture in a way that was different than the boomer-driven culture of the previous decades? Well, I have
1: two answers to that. The first was
0: the answer sort of I built into the book,
1: which was that the main reason Generation X is the least annoying generation is because it's the smallest generation. It has the least number of people, so the least potential to be annoying. There also seemed to be a sense that The baby boob generation was uh, almost kind of pedantic about uh, their criticism of the people who came next. And the generation following Gen X seemed much more enraged and angry and distraught and and sort of kind of grievance built. So there was less complaining from that kind of middle sector of people. Now, some people say that that is like a, like a, a weird thing to sort of be happy about. It's almost like bragging about apathy. But I don't know, there's a fraction of truth in that. The other thing I will say is that on the page of my book where I called Gen X, you know, the the least knowing generations, you know, many people who are older and younger than me hated that and and (laughs) criticized me for saying that and and, and couldn't believe I said that. Now, everywhere else on that page, it basically says how, you know, Gen X people were kind of apathetic. They're not that meaningful. They'll probably never be a Gen X president They sort of uh, were willing to sort of accept things that they consciously maybe disagreed with, but didn't care. You know how many Gen Xers have complained about that? None. (laughs) No member of Generation X has complained about the multitude of negative things I said about them. And yet there's been this like minor firestorm over the fact that I said they weren't annoying by everybody who's not them. So that's proof of their lack of annoyance, that they did not complain about the negative things I declared them to be. Now, the second thing you asked was, like, how did this shape sort of, you know, the way we think about culture from that period? Well, the 90s in some ways are split into two sections. There's kind of two 90s. There's the first half up through, you know, kind of starting actually with, like, the release of Nirvana's Nevermind, arguably ending when Kurt Cobain killed himself. And then there's that second half of the 90s. The cliche of the period is that first section. All the things when we think about, you know, sort of the way people dress, the way people act, all of the things that would be a, in a cartoon about the 90s happen in that first section. And that really is, I, I suppose, like the vortex of like the Gen X sensibility, you know, the, that the idea that there was something kind of unseemly about being aspirant, an adversarial relationship with commercialism and selling out and all of these things. By the end of the 90s, that was kind of over. I mean, just using music as the example, again, if you look at 98, 99, 2000, when you, boy bands are coming out, Britney Spears is coming out, a lot of these things that are happening were almost like like the most overt kind of disposability that you could
0: imagine. But that's in the 90s too. It's just that we don't think of that as 90s thinking. Okay. You, you mentioned Nirvana's album, Nevermind, which looms large in the book. I, I want to take that up now if it's okay. You write, quote, the video for Smells Like Teen Spirit was not more consequential than the reunification of Germany, but never mind, it's an inflection point where one style of Western culture ends and another's begins, mostly for reasons only vaguely related to music. I also love the line quote, The legacy of Smells Like Teen Spirit was not transposable. It had to be this song delivered by this person, unquote. What was its significance as a cultural marker for the decade? And what do you think, Chuck, was behind its popularity and notoriety? Well, the short answer to its its
1: popularity, it is kind of merit-based, okay? Nevermind is a very good record made by a very talented band. Smells like Teen Spirit is sort of the the best manifestation of what they were doing musically at the time. It was well produced. It was essentially a record with punk aesthetics that was produced like a Metallica or Motley Crue record. So there were people who would have never in the past been interested in sort of outsider music who now were because it didn't seem like outsider music at all but the real significance of that is non-musical. You can certainly argue that there are 10, 20, 50 records if you're depending on your taste that are better than Nevermind. But Nevermind is the shift point from what we think about, you know, the 80s, sort of the idea of like, you know, Gordon Gecko, um, you know, um hair metal, the 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 sort of the Reagan era MTV, the 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 sort of the the real, almost, you know, distaste for hippie ideology, you know, shows like Family Ties or a movie like The Big Chill where these people are dealing with, like, the failure of the 60s. And then you get this thing, this record that comes out, and for all the people who had been uncomfortable with the the world that the 80s sort of seemed to symbolize, they now had something to be like, well, this is the artifact that overturns all that. And in fact, It is not just a good record. It is a kind of a, 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 like a, like a microscope into the mind of the modern young person. So everything we do, everything that we sell, everything that we make, everything that we build has to be understood through this specific person. And, you know, I was recently listening to a podcast that Courtney love was on and she was talking about how there was some interest in making in bloom the first single off nevermind. And she really believes that it's a superior song and they should have done that. Almost everything is different, I think, if that happens. I don't think that, that the idea that Kurt Cobain had this kind of exceptional position in the culture occurs if the first thing we hear is a song that sounds the way In Bloom sounds. It had to be Smells Like Teen Spirit. Now, I could talk for an hour about the specific musical qualities of it that make it that. I think that would be kind of you know, boring to a lot of people. I don't think it's transposable with other songs. I do think that there is some things that aren't just the right time at the right place. Some things are it. Like they need to be the thing.
0: I should just say in parentheses, Chuck, I remember as a young person sitting in the back of my parents' minivan on long trips, listening to a recorded cassette of Nevermind. And as you say, what a, what a, break it seemed to represent from the music that my parents listened to at the front of the van. Let me follow up, though, because as I was reading the book, one thing I wondered is the odd dynamic in which Nirvana, in its form of the youthful grunge genre, defines the decade's music, but Seinfeld and its quirky, yet mostly observational humor, defines its television. What do you think explains this dichotomy, or do you disagree that the two are dichotomous? That's a great question because those are two things that don't seem
1: to have much in common. But remember rock music, pop music in general is kind of a rarity among 20th century art and that it was the only art ever defined by young people made for young people. The whole idea is that this is youth music. It, you know, pop music is the only thing where the opinion of a 75 year old critic means less than any 13 year old. Like if we're talking about a new song, and you can ask Robert Kriscow, or you can ask a high school girl, everyone's going to believe the high school girl. Most art isn't like that. Okay. Television, of course, skews older. Kids watch television, but they kind of watch what's on or what's, you know, sort of almost a like a time filler for them. And certainly in the 90s, music mattered more than television to young people. It's not that way now, I don't think. But the uh, Seinfeld had this like a, it, it was a uh, sort of an encapsulation of the dominant form of humor during that period, which was postmodern irony, basically, like irony was everything in the 90s from a comedic perspective. That was the only thing that we seemed to understand as funny. And the postmodern aspect of Seinfeld was the constant recognition that this was a TV show we were watching, that on this TV show, they were trying to make a TV show about their life in the TV show. Seinfeld wasn't about reality. In fact, as the show moved on, it became more and more absurd. The show that was probably just as meaningful over time has been Friends, because Friends was more replicable. People attempted to to make versions of Seinfeld that didn't really work. I mean, there there are many examples of this. But Friends was different. Friends was sort of something that existed almost out of time. I mean, I think it's very interesting to me that, you know, uh, the show Friends was about People in their 20s, in the 90s, dealing with problems of middle life kind of between, you know, when you leave your family and your friends are more important than your family and all that. But we don't see that as having Gen X characteristics because that show is kind of made outside of time. And as a consequence, a young person can still watch Friends and and, and sort of connect with it in the same way that people did at the time. Because when you watch an episode of Friends, it's very difficult to know exactly when it's happening. They make some cultural references. You know, there's a show episode about Hootie and the Blowfish. You know, there's an episode Jean-Claude Van Damme on. For the most part, it's impossible to tell. It, It almost kind of pushed culture more than it pulled at it. Like, you know, like people all had haircuts like Jennifer Aniston for a while. It wasn't like Jennifer Aniston's hair was based off what was happening in the world. So, I mean, those two shows, those two sitcoms, you know, played back to back on Thursdays is probably the, the way to understand 90s television if you're going to use a real small sampling.
0: Well, that leads to a question I wasn't going to put to you, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask it. You write in the book that Friends wouldn't have made it if Seinfeld wasn't already around. What do you mean, Chuck?
1: Well, I can't guarantee that it wouldn't have made it, but there was the idea that Friends in some ways was built off of the Seinfeld model, which is like, okay, so it's set in New York, but even though it's clearly filmed in L.A., Dating is really the core problem, but the B story is always about the quirks of the characters. And Seinfeld was, you know, had kind of become a a popular thing in 1994 when Friends came out. And that was during a time, which, you know, seems very antiquated now, where the most important thing about any TV show was the show that directly preceded it. I mean, now because we stream things, you know, like my kids have no sense of when a television show is actually on the idea of waiting for a television show seems absurd to them. Like they don't even really understand what, like they're almost like, what would be the purpose of that? And it's like, well, there was no purpose. It's just the way it was. You, know, you can look through this whole lineage of shows in the nineties, something like Veronica's closet. That's a show that's on after Seinfeld. And it's the, like the fourth most popular show in the country. They move it to Monday and it disappears. You know, there's a whole, you know, there was a, a show called um, the single guy. And that was kind of, you know, the idea was almost like, well, this is almost a younger Jerry Seinfeld or whatever, you know, what it cost to buy advertising on that show was massive, even though it wasn't a fraction as popular as, say, a show like Murder, She Wrote, because there was also the understanding in the 90s that certain audiences mattered more. A young person living in a city was much more important than three people living in, like, suburban Omaha or whatever, you know, who were in their 50s. So the, the the relationship between Friends and Seinfeld is pretty strong. You know, it's, like, not necessarily maybe in in how the show feels to someone watching it now, but from a constructive standpoint, if you're in D.C. at the time.
0: Yeah. One more question about art and music. You, you write that Garth Brooks was the biggest musical act of the decade. What's the legacy of his so-called, quote, walmart school of business did it influence the future or was it the last gasp of a pre-internet age in which specialization and niche audiences came to trump brooks's volume-based model which you describe as the quote wonder genius of his generation unquote
1: yeah well you know there are there are two ways to look at this i mean one way is to say that you know garth brooks is this bizarre anomaly who was not only the biggest artist of the 90s but the, the biggest singles artist ever in terms of selling records and moving units you know nobody was bigger than that i think his least successful record in the 90s was a christmas album that still went double platinum i think you know and that was his second attempt at a christmas album i think there was only one year maybe two years in the 90s where he didn't put a record out he was very prolific and yet we don't think of him as a 90s figure like the if we were making a uh, i don't know a collage of 90s figures somebody would be like, well, we've got to put Eddie Vedder in there before we put in Garth Brooks. or We need to put, you know, uh, Liz Fair in there before we put in Garth Brooks. So, So in a sense, it was almost like because he is very separate from the kind of imposed zeitgeist, what we sort of like to retroactively consider to be what the 90s were like, he is in some ways, you know, less significant than he should be. Although I suppose there's another school of thought who say, well, when you look at Spotify now, you have these songs that have these huge, uh, you know, listener counts that, that their plays are just massive. And, and these people don't seem famous at all. Like they, they, it, it almost seems as though it is just kind of background music that, and that the meaning of the artist, what culture that artist comes from matters less. And maybe you could say, well, that is an extension of, of, sort of the kind of the phenomenon of Garth Brooks or whatever, because there were a lot of people who liked Garth Brooks who did not associate themselves as being fans of country music. They maybe didn't have any other country records in their collection, but they were like, well, I like this and I don't really want to, you know, I don't really care what it means. I mean, you know, it's, it, it's, it's intriguing because, you know, like Garth Brooks wrote a song about the LA riots from the kind of sympathetic toward the, the riders. And, uh, you know, he, he was, uh, pretty forward thinking, progressive on like gay rights. In many ways, you would think, well, he would be, you know, he was going against the kind of like the conservative underpinnings of how we see country music, but his audience didn't mind. He was not seen as being liberal. He was not really seen as being conservative. He didn't really have any kind of meaning outside of his music. And that in many ways explains its success that people who consumed his work were only consuming the work. And did not, therefore, have to say, well, this says something about me. All it says is I like it.
2: The Hub has the perfect holiday gift for the thinking person in your life. That's right. You can give the gift of the Hub. Hub gifties get all kinds of great benefits, including a one-size-fits-all luxury twill Hub baseball cap to sport their hubbiness this holiday. You get access for your Gift E to Hub Form, our daily email newsletter and discussion group, complimentary access for the Gift E to all our live events, and special offers on events, books, and hub merchandise. Grab your hub gift subscription right now at our website wwthehub.ca. Simply click on the join button, scroll to the bottom of our membership page. Follow the instructions, and we'll give you 20% off right now on this gift offer. Simply input the promo code SUBSCRIBE20 at checkout. Give the gift to the hub this holiday season.
0: I should just say, Jack. as I was preparing for the interview, I was struck by how many Garth Brooks songs I knew, and even, even the lyrics, and yet I don't recall spending a lot of time listening to Garth Brooks songs, as you say, it was just sort of part of the background of the decade. Well, I
1: mean, that was the, it was the end of the monoculture and, and, and in a monocultural world that happens, you know, I had written a book. My first book was about heavy metal of the eighties, you know, bands like poison and guns and roses and Motley Crue and stuff. And, and, you know, over and over again, people would say like, you know, I didn't even like any of these bands. I remember all of them, you know, that is a, Harder thing to have happened now. Hmm. I mean, there are TikTok influencers who have millions of followers, but if you're not a specific follower of them, you've never heard of them. And that's sort of the siloing off of our world, which I'm not necessarily saying is terrible. You can make an argument that it's, you know, it, it allows people to have more of a personal relationship with these things. But it seems strange
0: because I was so used the other thing for most of my life. Let's turn to politics. I was struck by how much attention you dedicate to the figure of Ross Perot. Why do you think he was such an important political figure? And how much do you think he presaged the rise of unconventional candidates like Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump?
1: When I was working on this book, that was actually the first essay I wrote because I thought to myself, I know I'm going to have to write about politics and I got to make sure I can do this in a way that is to my standards and the standards of other people. So I was having a lot of conversations about Perot. And what I found was that if I asked someone, what percentage of the vote did Ross Perot get? They would often say something like this. Oh, quite a bit. He, I, he did pretty well. I, I bet he got, you know, 5% of the vote, you know, and he got 19% of the popular vote. That's one fifth of the country essential. That's real strange. That's real weird when you think about it. I mean, if a third party candidate got 19% of the vote now, I think that they would be seen as a transformative figure, like like Andrew Yang or whatever, 19% of the vote, people would be sort of shocked by that. Now, he was interesting to me because, you know, from a mechanical standpoint, if we look at just the statistics from what people said coming out of the voting booth, essentially Half of the people who voted Perot said they would have voted for Bush if if Perot wasn't in the race, and half said they would have voted for Clinton. So, of course, a lot of mathematicians argue that he actually had no impact on the race. That that he split a fifth of the populace who would have bifurcated themselves into the traditional parties had he not been there. But that's not really accurate because he dramatically changed that race. He was very aggressive toward Bush because. You know, people don't remember this because they think of Thoreau just as this figure who was interested in, like, kind of running the country like a business and sort of this kind of common sense economic, you know. uh, uh, But the fact of the matter is he first got in the race because he was upset about the Gulf War and about basically America's involvement with wars overseas. But when the Gulf War ended the way it did, you know, seemingly a, a, a super success for Bush. He sort of pivoted to this different kind of person who was against sort of Bush as an idea, and that allowed Clinton to be pretty much only charming. He never had yes. to really go to war with Bush. Mm. He could sort of be this young, optimistic person who was like, "I think America can be great for all these different reasons and and, and I think we just need to shift in this direction and it's you neil know, like he you you can't find you know any content bill clinton attacking george bush for the gulf war because how can you you know at the time it was seen as as political suicide to criticize a guy for winning a war but perot didn't care so perot did that and i do think that if perot was not involved in that race bush probably does win and that has a huge cascading effect over time if you know if bush wins re-election it is possible that the Democratic Party is like, well, we, we got to completely reinvent ourselves. OK, and I also think it's it's weird as it sounds. I think the Republican Party would be less radical if that had happened. But by losing that race, it kind of installed Newt Gingrich as the face of the right. And that's when things started to get crazy. So I do think that H. Ross Perot is a very underrated figure in contemporary political
0: history. And so that's what I wrote about. We'll come to Gingrich in a minute. But before we get there, one of the most bizarre things about modern U.S. politics is that we've seemed to have gone backwards generationally. If Bill Clinton's defeat of, of George H.W. Bush was to usher in a period of generational transition, the prospect of Donald Trump running against Joe Biden in 2024 would be a sign that such a transition not only never happened, but it's seemingly been reversed. What do you think explains that, Chuck? I think the, the biggest factor is, in a
1: way, non-political in terms of, of you talking generations, in the sense that a 30-year-old person now lives much closer to what was the previous conception of a 21-year-old, and a 50-year-old person lives in a younger way than a 50-year-old person from, say, our parents' generation. So the age of Trump and Biden, the number is big, but they're not the kind of elderly person that we would have seen 100 years prior. But side of that, I think it has, you know, we're really, if you really want to get into the political aspect of this, I think it's it's the 2000 election, particularly how the 2000 election was decided. No one likes to say this now because it, it, it seems like kind of a reductionist way to argue, but the narrative going into the 2000 election was that Gore and Bush are essentially identical. They're both guys who went to Ivy league schools from political families. You know, Bush would you know speak Spanish at a Republican debate. And it'd be like, he's kind of a compassionate conservative. Gore, you know, was married to Tipper Gore and Joe Lieberman was his, his running mate. So it, it was almost like, well, maybe he's actually the more reactionary guy, you know, like, I often reference the fact that it's like a rage against the machine video, which is just footage of Bush and Gore saying the exact same thing. So it isn't like this is like what the elites thought. It was common for people to think that. There was a, you know, the whole idea of like, who would you rather have a beer with? That comes out of that election. Cause that was like, well, it doesn't really matter anyways. So which guys just kind of seems comfortable. But then the, you know, the situation happens in Florida, uns- unsettled who wants, almost kind of impossible to know. The Supreme Court makes a decision and then the world became very binary because it was like it was almost like American culture got hit in the face by a hammer and said, here's how it is now. There are two sides and that's it. There are two opposing sides and there is no room for this sort of 90s haziness where it's like, well, both of those things might be true. You know, the 90s were a big cognitive dissidence period where you could have two contradictory ideas in your mind and express them and it was like well that makes you reasonable that was kind of over so as we move you know from 2000 then over the next 23 years the that, that bifurcation becomes greater and greater the chasm becomes wider and it almost the strange deal now it's like sometimes you'll see someone like oh you know like herschel walker will run for office and and it will just seem insane people will be like this guy doesn't believe in evolution or whatever. He doesn't know anything. It's like, how how could he possibly be, you know, a viable Republican candidate? But The fact of the matter is, he's almost just a voting machine. Like, if there's a more reasonable, educated Republican in that position, they're still going to vote the same way Herschel Walker would have voted. So the idea of, you know, of like Biden and Trump, they really are just figureheads for these blocks that are only going to think one way about everything. And that might be why it seems as though the the best candidate to run now is just whoever has the highest name recognition. I mean, you know, I'll have political conversations with people, and they'll be like, you know, I think Dwayne Johnson should run. I think the rap should run. And everyone kind of chuckles. And part of me is like, so that might make sense, like it may, because it's it's not we're no longer voting for a person. We're voting for a list of
0: ideas that that person is going to enforce regardless of how they feel. You write that the decade's politics were marked in part by growing rejection of so-called political correctness. One doesn't want to be deterministic about these things, but that was arguably part of Newt Gingrich's appeal in the 1994 congressional elections. Chuck, do you see any parallels today with the rise of so-called wokeism and its own emerging critiques and backlash? Absolutely. I mean, you know,
1: it it seems to happen about every 25 years or so where this occurs, where there are these kind of profound semantic arguments over the meaning of language. Now, it's a little different now because, you know, we we've sort of moved from this idea of working toward equality, toward working toward equity, which are much different principles like i don't i don't i think i don't think people realize how different those two ideologies are you know in the 90s it was more of an insular academic art i mean there was fear that oh, you can't say whatever you want now at the office that was true then a lot of it that was probably you know, quite positive in a way you know like it was like there were certain limitations in media the limitations were actually loosened and suddenly you could say things on nypd blue or south park or something you couldn't have said in the past so there it was almost as if this idea of political correctness was uh like a like a thought experiment like you know and now that is happening again but the thought experiment has imbued personality now but i mean in both cases what what it did is that it, it prompts people to sort of uh see their political philosophy as mostly a rejection of a political philosophy of a person they don't like. Okay. And, and it's not always necessarily they don't like that person's politics. They don't like that person. They don't like that type of personality. But if that type of personality holds a political value, well, then it's like the value becomes the problem. And there was some of that in the 90s as well. But, you know, like I say, in the 90s, it was more like you're in college, you're in an English class, you know, you're debating whether or not boxing should exist or whatever. It was like, it was like these, these ideas that it was like, well, what if they actually spilled into the world? It was like, that was almost, that's actually the, maybe the best way to describe it. There was this idea like we're talking about these things, and wouldn't it be interesting if this actually became part of everyday life? What is different now is it is part of everyday life for a lot of people, or at least people who are online, which is sort of
0: represents another bifurcation, the difference between people who care about what's going on in social media and the people who don't. Talk about Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing. How were the 1990s harbinger of right-wing extremism?
1: I guess that that's a tough one in some ways, because certainly he emerges from a kind of, of, of Hyper right-wing idealism. I mean, like he read the Turner Diaries, right? He looked at Ruby Ridge and he looked at Waco and he was like the government is in this position where they're basically oppressing. It was just one of those weird things where it's like he could argue it's like he's to the right because he went so far left he came all the way around, like in this fear of government or whatever. When that happened, there was this initial belief that, well, it must be Syria who did this. Like this has all, you, know, you look at all the news reports from the day it happened. You know, you have people like on CBS and CNN saying like, well, this is all the hallmarks of like a, of an explosion in Beirut or whatever. So then it turns out it's this guy who used to be in the military. He's from upstate New York. That's like, wow, this is, this is weird. This is, this the most dangerous person? This is the most dangerous person, somebody who exists in this country. Is that more dangerous than somebody who has, you know, uh, ill will toward the United States as a country from another place? I sub- these, you know, I, there's always a temptation to connect all of these things. You know, it, it, you know, you can connect the contemporary protest movement, you know, back to the Weathermen and the Black Panthers. You can connect the kind of the, the current kind of right wing mania to Timothy McVeigh and David Koresh, and you know, all these things through time. You know, I, I mean, he, he's a harbinger of the present, if you believe that. I mean, you know, and a lot of people do. I'm not saying I don't. I'm just saying that it's like that. If if you're trying to make this connection, it's sort of like if you make the mental connection, it exists because all it is is a projection, right? We have no. It's not as though people are. I don't think left like up like I have these political views as a homage to Timothy McVeigh. I, I don't see that expressed, but the things that he feared or hated or disliked, whatever word you want to use, those things don't really change. Like, they're they're still present.
0: You mentioned in a previous answer today's online world. You also write in the book that 1995, quote, seems like the year the future began because of the rise of Netscape Navigator and the early version of the internet. Why don't you talk a bit about how it came to influence and shape the decade?
1: Well, there is... I, it's very easy to imagine a future where when people think about the 90s, I'm saying in a hundred years, and and maybe the only thing that they really remember is the internet possibly the beginning of cloning. Like that maybe those might be the two things that, that, that sort of uh, become like the only memory of this period. Now, what is interesting is that the internet certainly existed in the 90s, but it was a com- it was so different than the way we think of it now, but we we kind of project our present understanding of what the internet is like onto what we assume the dawn of it must have been. So you you mentioned 1995, okay? So Amazon starts that year, but they're only selling books. You know, Craigslist starts that year. We had no idea that that was going to devastate the newspaper industry. It did, but you know that was just like a epiphenomenal effect of it. I mean, it wasn't like his intention. The search engines and the ability to search starts changing. But a lot of the things that we think about the internet now, if you ask someone, if you were to, to ask your listenership, you know, it's like, what are problems with the internet? They would give you this list. And what they would really be doing is giving you a list of problems with social media, which didn't really exist in the nineties. And that is like a, you know, you could still be a person in 1999 who wasn't on the internet and it wasn't that big of a deal. I mean, I was working in media, so of course I was more involved with it. But, you know, there was a long period where it was like, oh, yeah, I use the internet. It's great for fantasy football, it's great for driving directions. It's like, you know, people, I was like, okay, unlimited pornography. It's like, you know, you can find a uh, recipe for chicken parmesan real fast. You know, the idea that sort of it would both connect people and make them more alienated at the same time, that was something that people said, but not really felt. So what is important to me about the internet's relationship to the 90s is that it's both over and underrated. It is the single most important thing that happened, but did not affect the period as much as we now imagine or pretend.
0: Let me ask a penultimate question. How should we think about the decade in hindsight? Was it an era of fleeting optimism or a precursor to many of the challenges that we faced in the subsequent two decades?
1: I mean, this seems like kind of an uncool answer, but like, I don't think there is a right way to think about the past. I don't. I'd say about any decade. Like, I don't think there is a way that we should think about the 50s. I just, my thing is always like, I want our thinking to be accurate, okay? The way the 90s felt at the time, at least to me uh, you know, so here again, I can't speak for every person in the world, but, you know, from my perspective, trying to be as objective as possible was that the world is slightly underwhelming. Like it doesn't seem as though the future is what, what the future was imagined, say in the seventies, Th- there was a security in that, but you're not always conscious of security until it goes right. Like, I mean, that's the, that is the big thing about, you know, nine eleven or whatever, it's hard to sort of get back in the mindset that it didn't even really occur to people that America could be attacked by an outside source. It was like, well, it happened, you know, at Pearl Harbor when that was the last time, you know. The, so like the, the security that existed in the 90s was unconsidered, right? I think this is maybe, in a, maybe a better way to answer your question. When we think about the 90s, and we think about like what was positive about it in a weird way. Many of the upsides were things that were just not considered. They were just not talked about. They did not seem to be on the table. Whereas now many things seem on the table that in the past would have been, I don't know, like a fantastical idea or,
0: or something you'd see in alternative fiction or whatever. Yeah. Final question. What's your favorite story, anecdote, or insight in the book?
1: Oh, you know, I don't know if this is my favorite, but this is one that I, I, I think is interesting because it just sort of shows the way marketing operates and the way, the way marketing operated at the time. There was a strange mania over clear beverages. Okay, Zima being clear, you know, basically a clear version of course that tasted a little bit like champagne and Sprite. And then no one had really asked for clear beer. No one, I don't remember anyone ever saying, the thing I don't like about beer is that it's too hard to see through. It's not trying to loosen. but then it comes out, you know, and people are interested. Seems futuristic. Then came Crystal Pepsi, which was exactly like Pepsi, except clear. There was absolutely no difference. The taste, in fact, was identical. What was weird is that it tasted different to people because your mind sort of projects what they expect. And, you know, so, but Crystal Pepsi exists. And for one year, like it does really well. It launches during the Super Bowl. The ad is based off a of Van Halen video and it looks just like the video, exactly like the video. They're interchangeable. It does very well. So, Coke sees Crystal Pepsi and they're like, well, how can we deal with this? And they have an idea. We have this product called Tab, which is like the first diet beverage and no one likes it. It has a terrible aftertaste. Is completely replaced by Diet Coke and, and all of these other things. It's like Tab is sort of like the least popular beverage that Coke has. So they make a clear version of it. Knowing that if they make a clear version of Tab in a store, it's going to be placed next to Crystal Pepsi. They're going to put the clear beverages next to each other. And people are going to think Crystal Pepsi must be like Tab. And people hate Tab. So both of the products fail on purpose, like Coke consciously kamikaze crystal Pepsi by making a drink that was even worse, knowing that the consumer would see that terrible beverage as associated with the thing that they may have wanted. And I just think that that is like, in some ways it's like, talk about you know i say how irony was the only way we understood anything like even in marketing we need to do an ironic form of marketing we need to make something so terrible that it will infect things that are just placed next to it at the store
0: that's a very 90s thing well that's merely one example of the tremendous depth and insights reflected in the book the 90s we've only Scratch the surface in this conversation, but I've enjoyed it a great deal. Chuck Klosterman, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
2: Thank you for listening to the Hub Dialogues brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on the issues driving the public conversation. Please share this episode of Hub Dialogues with friends and family and leave us a review wherever you get your audio online. You can also go to our website, www.thehub.ca, to sign up for our free weekly newsletter featuring the best of the Hub's journalism and commentary. I'm Roger Griffiths, the Executive Director of the Hub. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. This episode was produced by Amal Atter-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolovsky Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.